This is the fourth episode of a new series of the BMJ STI Transmitted Infections podcast. My name is Fabiola Martin. I'm the BMJ STI podcast editor and a consultant physician in sexual health medicine and senior research fellow at the School of Public Health at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane, Australia. Today, we will focus on the past and present history of the HIV epidemic in Indonesia. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Kerti Gedela and Dr. Henry Lewis. Hello and welcome, Kerti. Where are you joining us from now? Hello, Fabiola. Thank you very much for having us. I'm joining you from Bali, Indonesia. Thank you. And hello and welcome, Henry. And may I ask where you are joining us from? Hello, Fabiola. I'm joining from Bali, Indonesia as well. Thank you for having us. Fantastic. Kerti, um, I thought the best way forward would be for you two to introduce to us yourselves and also your scope of work. Of course, I'm a consultant physician and researcher in HIV and sexual health medicine from London, from 5016 Street, Chelsea Westminster NHS Trust. I trained in London, but have worked as a clinician, researcher and educator in a number of settings overseas. My interests are in implementation science to provide equitable, sustainable and compassionate healthcare through collaborative research, clinical innovation, and effective engagement with populations in need. I'm here working with a brilliant team of clinicians, academics, social scientists, and community members from Bali and Jakarta. Our project aims to help accelerate the HIV response in Indonesia. Thank you so much. And you, Henry, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what your scope of work is? Okay. I'm a physician with an interest in HIV and sexual health medicine, working in a Bali-based non-profit organization called Bali Peduli Foundation. Bali Peduli run two health services on HIV and sexual health medicine to key affected populations or communities such as the MSM, men sex with men, transgender, female sex worker, and IDU. Uh, Bali Peduli provide a comprehensive and one-stop services model of HIV care within primary care physicians' offices and within a public primary health care, in which in Indonesia we call Puskesma, Pusat Kesehatan Masyarakat. I also work with Kurti on the same project called Utama, which is a research project uh, in uh, Bali. Thank you so much. So um, IDU stands for, for people injecting drugs, I think. Yes, yes, that's true. Thank you. Well, we, we are here together because we're all very interested to discuss um, and find out through you um, the story of the HIV epidemic in Indonesia. At the start, I mean, could you tell us a little bit about Indonesia itself? So the population, economy, maybe a little bit about how uh, well does it achieve UN Sustainable Development Goals? Okay, I'll try to briefly describe. Indonesia is the largest archipelago with over 270 million people. And it is the fourth populous country in the world. It has a total of 70,000 islands, which is 6,000 are inhabited. It's stretched between Australia and Asian continents. Our population is very diverse. There are over 600 recognized ethnic and speaking 700 living languages and dialect. Most of the people are urban, 50% around the age of 30 years old is the average age and with a life expectancy about 72 years. 
uh, being the 16th largest economy in the world, Indonesia is considered as an upper middle income country and classified as a newly industrialized country. Sadly, uh, there is still a huge economy disparity and equality there. Uh, concerning the UN Sustainable Development Goals, in terms of health and well-being goals, there have been some significant improvements, such as the maternal mortality rate decrease and the fertility rates are decreasing. But the prevalence of some chronic diseases such as the hypertension, diabetes, etc. is increasing. In terms of education, it improved significantly. Looking at young people, more than 90% are literate and more than 50% have IT and computer skills. Fantastic. When you say the fertility rates are decreasing, do you mean that people have more access to uh, contraception and choices around how to organize and develop their families? Yes, yes. There has been, a, uh, I think, three decades of the program by the government. Fantastic. So more choices for women and their partners. But, Kurti, could you please tell us a little bit about the problem at hand? So... How is Indonesia planning its HIV eradication program? We know from UNAIDS eradication goals that all of us you know, want to eradicate HIV eventually. So how does it align itself? What's the plan? Is it successful? Yeah, sure. So Indonesia's HIV programs are primarily funded by the Global Fund. Unfortunately, HIV programs have not been recently domestically prioritised and the country faces a number of, uh, best way of putting it, context-specific challenges and institutional hurdles. For example, issues related to health systems, and geographical diversity, the political environment and law, policy and increasing social stigma. There are a few key things to note about the HIV epidemic in Indonesia. Um, unlike most of the high, middle and low income world where AIDS-related deaths fell by the 2000s due to wide-scale access to antiretroviral treatment, or ART, AIDS deaths have not fallen in Indonesia and have increased by 60% over the last decade. Wow. As we know, deaths due to AIDS can be entirely prevented. However, only 14% of deaths due to AIDS are estimated to be averted by ART in Indonesia, a devastating health inequality. Can I just double check, did you say 14%? Yes, that's right, one for 14%. Very low, very low. Absolutely. Especially women from non-key populations, such as housewives. So in comparison to the UK, where all known pregnant women living with HIV are on antiretroviral medication and mother-to-child transmission is almost unheard of. In Indonesia, only 15% of pregnant women living with HIV have access ART for prevention to mother-to-child transmission or PMTCT. So the number of uh, mother-to-child transmission is increasing. Indonesia have, however, recently implemented a welcome national acceleration plan that is focused predominantly on improving the second 90 and getting people living with HIV into care and onto ART. This includes widening access to ART, increasing ART provision to three months from one month to, for stable patients, improving mm -hmm. viral load monitoring in cities like Jakarta and PrEP rollout schemes. 
So just let me get this straight. So only 14% of deaths due to AIDS are averted with antiretroviral medication in Indonesia. And only 1% of those who receive antiretrovirals are known to have a suppressed viral load. This is less than 50. And you're saying that only 15% of pregnant women who generally represent the general population living with HIV have access to antiretrovirals to prevent their own disease from progressing and from, from their virus being transmitted to their babies. That's absolutely right. It takes a moment for me, you know, for this to sink in. Um, I'm glad you mentioned pre-exposure prophylaxis prep. We'll, we'll come to that later in this talk. But I feel kind of overwhelmed by what you two are describing. First, the country itself and then the problem at hand. Almost 40 years since the discovery of HIV itself. So Henry, there is a considerable gap between what you would like to achieve and what the results have been so far. Do we know what the root causes of this gap are? I think the reason for this gap are multifactorial and multifaceted. The geographical and the socio-demographic aspect pose a unique challenges to any public health program planning and its implementations. This really makes the distribution of the information, drugs, and prevention tools become a monumental challenges. Mm -hmm. The health system itself is also decentralized. It is a massive challenge to implement any change systematically while taking into consideration the local culture, language, and health systems support structures. And one of the most important thing inhibitor to the progress is the social stigma associated with living with HIV. So social stigma is, you believe, one of the most important inhibitors. Um, could you tell me or tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, there are still a lot of people out there, I mean, in Indonesia, still thinks that HIV has no treatment. And getting HIV is because of certain risky uh, bad behaviors, such as uh, free sex and drug use. And, and those become the social stigma that uh, retard the progress of the program. And I guess that stigma prevents people from accessing treatment, which is test and treatment, one of the major ways of preventing transmission. Yes, that's very true. So if the society is, is against you, then it'll be hard for you to voice your needs and your um, access the care you need for yourself and your family. So I can see that you, especially if it's a marginalized population, they become even more marginalized. Yeah become more marginalized and more difficult to access and sometimes they think that HIV is just another death sentence slow but sure you are going to die and without even knowing that there, there are actually treatments out there at the gap uh, from the UNH target from the estimates to those who are really actually testing and those who are retained on the treatments it's, it's, it's still very very big yeah very big gap thank you Kerti, could you talk to us through, through an example of shortcomings that lead to continuous increase in HIV transmission in Indonesia? And I think from the numbers that you explained to us, it's not just you know marginalized group, isn't it? It has reached levels where there is spilling over into other groups or general population. But you know the current system that you all have to work with, um, the health politics, um, 
is there something around lack of funding or women power, you know, capacity, for example, is there legalized and supported sex work? We know that that is a very good public health measure and it's known to reduce HIV transmission. Is this, for example, um, a legalized supported sex work implemented in Indonesia? Yeah, you highlight, um, you highlight some of the challenges I think faced here. So it, it comes back to multifactorial issues like Hendry described related to a number of different but very interconnected issues and related to your point Indonesia in Indonesia sex work is illegal including in brothels which have been recently closed down so many female sex workers have shifted to becoming indirect and driven into hiding or disguise so they increasingly suffer not only the stigma and consequent shame and fear from being a sex worker and often of their individual circumstances, but also the fear of persecution and imprisonment and the fear of not being able to work to provide money for their family. As you say, this also disables public health access and outreach to this vulnerable group and drives risk underground, additionally increasing their risk to harm, abuse and trafficking. Female sex workers are also not always sex workers. For example, recent data highlighted the differing priorities of female sex workers that span through their role in the migrant community as daughters, as mothers, and as future wives, as they describe living a normal life where the community accepts them. When they stop having KP status, that can impact on them getting into testing and treatment services. What, what is a KP status? Sorry, yes, so key population status. So like a risk group for HIV or? Absolutely, so key populations are the high, the specific at-risk groups um, for HIV infection. And they, um, in Indonesia, but, but also globally, as UNAIDS highlights, are groups that include MSM, men who have sex with men, sex workers, transgender women, people who inject drugs. Uh, and often in some settings, people who are institutionalised, prisoners, for example. Thank you. So I think um, uh, this also highlights, talking about female sex workers and their priorities, it highlights the intersectionality of people's lives and what drives stigma in society, their marginalisation and even the poverty they endure. Um, other key populations are similarly affected. A draft law was recently proposed that calls to criminalise sex before marriage, which affects the privacy rights of all people. Another calls to enforce individuals who are involved in same-sex relationships to report to the government for rehabilitation. There are police raids reported in different areas related to rounding up suspected gay men who gather at a club or elsewhere to charge them for crimes against the anti-pornography law, for example. Thank you so much. And, and Kurti, you mentioned before high risk populations and high prevalence in certain groups. I think a group that you're very concerned about are men who have sex with men and um, are at risk of HIV or carry HIV and live in Indonesia. Could you tell us a little bit about that risk group, please? Yeah, so there has been a specific dramatic increase in new HIV infections in MSM. 
nationally. Um, so although there are persistent high prevalence rates among other key populations, there, there have been dramatic increases specifically in MSM. Um, and this is from a prevalence rate of about 8.5% in 2011 to almost 26% in 2018 nationally. So again, to um, just digest the numbers here. So over the last seven years, there's an estimated increase of HIV by three times, the baseline in 2011. That's right. And in, in um, settings like Jakarta and Bali in Indonesia, that's up to about 33%. So around one in third MSM are living with HIV in those areas. So a fourfold increase. That's, that's incredible, actually. Um, well, Henry, Katy beautifully listed many effective um, measures that we can take together with our patients to prevent HIV transmission. So when we talk about prophylaxis, how difficult is it for people independent of their sexual preference or you know, gender to access condoms, testing and treating for HIV, pre and post exposure prophylaxis? We refer to it as PEP or PrEP. There are not many options for prevention available to, uh, in Indonesia here. The PrEP is not yet available. Uh, the post-exposure is difficult to access, especially to the non-occupational exposure, the sexual exposure. Condom can be easily accessed in certain area, especially in urban area, but not all urban area, only certain urban area. In some area, condom is only sold at pharmacy uh, because there is also a thought that distributing condom is promoting sex. So in terms of testing and treatments, uh, testing and treatments are provided by all, uh, most of the government hospital and clinics and some NGO clinics. The testing itself is free and the medicine itself is free, but patient has to pay uh, administration fee. And for the uh, post-exposure of PrEP itself, there are some underhands, uh, sole underhands is a black market and they have to pay at a very high price. I see. So it's, it can be difficult to access, especially if you are impoverished. Yeah. We talked about sex work and people who engage in sex work are not necessarily only sex workers. They have obviously families, they have uh, other partners, regular partners. Um, do you have any other examples for us or um, public health measures that prevent these? Uh, because, yes, I mean, there are strong social connections and networks between risk groups, high risk groups, such as. MSM, people who inject drugs and sex workers, and the general population who would be considered a low-risk group. For example, there are many reports that uh, MSM also report sex with women and are often marry women due to cultural um, norms. Hence, there is, that is another example of bridging of risk and transmission to lower-risk populations. And this requires a and comprehensive approach. Naturally, if we can control HIV in the risk groups through very effective prevention strategies, the whole population will benefit from this knock-on effect. We also need to proactively look for HIV in the general population. For example, 
antenatal HIV screening of pregnant mothers and treating HIV in pregnancy and thereafter protects the general population. Hendry mentioned Indonesia's decentralized healthcare systems. People belonging to at-risk groups are a very mobile population in Indonesia, which is uh, arguably the most geographically diverse country in the world. Many sex workers, MSM, male clients of sex workers move between provinces. Though they are more likely to be HIV tested and outreach services in certain central areas, once they are diagnosed HIV positive, they often move to another region, either driven by fear and shame of the diagnosis or just a need to return home. But there is no way to track people as they move um, from province to province and provide them with continuous HIV care. So there is really very little um, clarity in, in, in the pathway from the time you get diagnosed as to you know, follow up, testing, um, undetectable viral load, et cetera, et cetera. All the things we discussed around the 90-90-90 goals. So you, you may be lucky to get tested, you may be lucky to get your results, but then there's not, not always a very um, reliable pathway to continue your treatment and care. Yeah, so I guess it, it, it also ties into the basic provision of healthcare equity varies from province to province in Indonesia within a decentralized um, system. Yeah. Um, and there is currently no coordinated monitoring for um, HIV care that is nationalized. Yes. So there isn't tracking people who may move from province to province. Thank you for this clarification. Henry, do we know how the new COVID-19 pandemic has affected the old HIV endemic? Yes, it has hit us very hard. Here in Bali, uh, the COVID-19 lockdown has affected our antiretroviral supply and needed to switch to one from, a, from the one table daily regimens to multiple pill regimen using older drugs such as the Jidovudin and Nevirapine. And this has to be done very rapidly without being able to check the HIV viral load or any other, other uh, tests needed. Also, during the lockdown, people could not attend the clinic regularly. Obviously, some people were not being able to come to continue the HIV medication or knowing if their medication affects their health, but also this contribute to the transmission of HIV. And also the patient uh, has lost the job, they will have to return back to their villages and have uh, less uh, money to pay for the admin fee and all those things. So it sounds to me as, as if uh, the pandemic on top of the, a system that was difficult to implement created additional chaos. Yes, yes. very true. Very difficult to, to um, keep going. Thank you, Henry. Katie, have you observed any negative effects of the pandemic on HIV care or your research? Yeah, so we certainly have insight into this. I mean, I'm very concerned about the current COVID-19 pandemic and it further accelerating an already fast-growing HIV epidemic here. Many members of uh, key populations and people living with HIV are migrant workers for example, with no fixed home to isolate or ability to earn money. Um, due to the pandemic, many people have lost jobs, 
for example, in Bali, um, many workers are reliant on tourism. And that's completely been shattered, obviously, with, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Many people um, living with HIV have had to move home to differing islands um, and are therefore lost to follow up and will have less, less access to ART. They may inadvertently transmit HIV to low risk populations in the, in the community, rural communities that we discussed, people have very strong social uh, networks with. I have, however, made some positive observations. There has been increased and effective communication during this period that has added leverage for action. Um, community pressure alongside government organisations have, for example, achieved some innovation and have pushed forward uh, or accelerated um, some aspects that, that have been slow to, to be reached. For example, um, fixed dose tenofovir, lamivudine, and dolutegravir regimens have entered Indonesia via the Global Fund. Prior to this time, dolutegravir um, wasn't accessible in Indonesia. There um, has been an extension of antiretroviral medication from one month to three months for stable patients living with HIV, and that's been accelerated, particularly in areas highly affected by COVID-19. Wow. I mean, you know, things can get really worse, but there's at least something that is positive for, for the people who are affected. And Henry, humans are very resourceful. May I ask if there are any public health success stories that you could share with us? Well, I can see uh, many positive outcomes. Right now, we are now having online booking system and access to telehealth care. Registration and payment can be made online. We also help with the medication delivery to the clients, either by dropping the medicine via our outreach worker or an online platform, such as GrabBike. And there has been an increase of access online health education by the population. And this is, this is a very good thing, I think. That is a very good thing. And um, I think you know, education is, is, for every health condition really, paramount to to make sure that the information is arrives correctly and and that the patients have are empowered to look after their own health because they have now the correct information to go by so Katie, do you feel the same you feel that good and accessible sexual health education of the general public as well as specific risk groups could shape the general attitude of the population um, towards people who live with hiv but also those people who live with HIV towards themselves, because as we know, there is also internalized stigma and phobia. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, I mean, just to address some of those points, I think there are challenges to providing good, accessible sex education in the mainstream, um, perhaps not just for Indonesia, but, but in many settings. Online forums are a common method to seek information. Sex education, but also poor sex education can be sought online. The anti-pornography law in Indonesia has been criticized for being open to wide interpretation, including preventing good sexual health education. Internet censorship here has also removed websites that have been interpreted to be not in line with Indonesian law which could impact on online HIV education and preventative tools, in particular for 
uh, LGBT communities that are suffering increased institutional stigma that, that, um, uh, that, that is also to some degree politically driven. We also know that low levels of sexual health and HIV literacy among key affected populations across the board are related to poorer rates of HIV testing and retention in care. And that's been demonstrated in a number of different um, um, studies from Indonesia. It's not a straightforward area to address on a population, general population level. Um, however, good online HIV prevention behavioral tools are very important to decrease HIV transmission, particularly where they are engaging two key populations and using the technology that key populations show existing engagement in. Importantly, I think, as you say, also to think about the perceptions of stigma that they face and manage those to increase um, their empowerment in, in thriving uh, and in testing for HIV, taking their treatment and remaining in care. Additionally, there is a need to increase awareness of what living, H with, living with HIV is about, reducing social stigma and increasing respect uh, and human rights for marginalised people, which will help to reduce the shame and fear that prevents them accessing testing, care and prevention in, uh, in a setting where there, there are high levels of social stigma. We definitely have come to an end because the sun has set here in uh, Brisbane and the frogs and toads have joined in, in an evening chorus, which I'm not sure if you're recording here or not. But on behalf of the BMJ podcast team, I thank you and thank you and your colleagues for your efforts to improve the health of people living with HIV in Indonesia. Thanks very much, Fabiola and to STIBMJ for the opportunity to discuss issues. Thanks to you, Fabiola, and the STIBMG for having us. Thank you. We all thank you for listening and hope you can follow the BMJ STI podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Stay safe and goodbye.